in honor of Tubishvat, please help yourself. Okay. 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 Oh, somebody's here. Here, let me just. Okay. And just, okay. So today being that it's uh, to be Shvat, it's the 15th day of Shvat, which means that it's the Rosh Hashanah for the trees. As we know that uh, there are a lot of lessons that we learn from the trees, but that I'm sure you're going to learn about tonight as well. But uh, just as a sign point, there's the concept is that we know that there's no other holiday. We don't have a holiday that celebrates the birth of the animals, the birth of the uh, and anything else, but the birth of the trees, so to speak. What does it mean, the birth of the trees? It is at this time that each, the first sprouting or the first seedlings begin to sprout. And this was the same way on the day that the human being is born, created. So too we have Rosh Hashanah. So too there was a Rosh Hashanah for the time when the trees began to sprout as well. And that means that God is judging the trees, but it also tells us that we have to pray for all the vegetation as well, to be careful of it. We are told in the mitzvah in the Torah of Baal Tashchis, one is not allowed to destroy any, uh, one is not allowed to destroy any type of uh, thing which may be considered um, to destroy any type of uh, tree, any fruit tree, to the extent that one of the warnings when the Jewish people went to war, they were not allowed to destroy any fruit trees, they are only not, unless if they wanted to make pyramids or um, not pay, what are you, ladders to be able to climb over walls or even when it comes to building a home, anything of that nature, one has to be careful that they don't destroy any fruit trees so the fruit tree and the trees are considered a big value in Judaism. And the reason is that because in the book of Deuteronomy, the Torah also says, Adam asada, man is compared to a tree. And the many examples that we learn from a man to a tree, one of the primary ones are the same way a tree when it gives shade. It doesn't cost the tree, it doesn't hurt the tree, so too, when we help another person, and that's what we're meant to be doing, is it doesn't cost us, it doesn't hurt us, and even though it may look like in the beginning that yes, it may be costing money, I have to give to charity and whatever it may be, we should know that the Torah tells us just like a tree, when you give shade and you give your fruit, not only does it not hurt the tree, but it's beneficial for the tree, the same idea is also when a person helps somebody else, you are not losing anything from it, but on the contrary, you are gaining something from it as well. And it's a further investment for yourself. And then just an interesting tidbit before we get into what today's discussion is about. If you notice in Hebrew, the terminology for children is zera. Zera means children. Zera means seedling, but also means children. That your seedlings is your children. One of the things that we see about children, and what do people want from their children? Everybody wants their children should be better than themselves. You want to be a better parent than your parents were. You want to be, have children should be better than you are. We always look for our children to be better than we had. And the concept is, and why is it compared to a zera, to a seedling, is because there's nobody that puts a seedling into the ground hoping that they'll get one seedling back. You plant the seedling into the ground hoping you get a tree full of fruit that is going to come from it. The same thing is also our children. We invest in our children because we hope that we will get something more than just we've invested, so to speak. So it's just an interesting, one interesting comparison. But back to our discussion, this week's Torah reading, as we're going to see any person that has a simple reading of this week's Torah reading, will see that there is a seemingly, seemingly out of order. Meaning, the beginning of the Torah reading tells us about Jethro coming and meeting Moshe. Right after Jethro comes, all of a sudden it says, and it was the next morning, and Jethro all of a sudden starts sharing his wisdom, his brainstorm, like a good father-in-law telling his son-in-law what to do. And, of him, and, he, and he starts giving him his ideas. Of course, God, in this case, complies and says Jethro has a good idea. And in fact, he was given the name Jethro because he added a Torah reading to the Torah. That means he added an idea that was, so to speak, not initially there. The, however, this idea that Jethro told Moshe was given after the Torah with the Ten Commandments were given at Mount Sinai. The next Torah reading tells us about the Ten Commandments given at Mount Sinai. So it's not in chronological order. And simply because the Torah is not in chronological order because we know that the Torah is not a history book. And in order to prove that the Torah is not a history book, that the idea of the Torah is the lessons and the values that we learn from it, purposely our sages, that God had made that the Torah should not be in chronological order. And one of the prime examples are in this week's Torah reading. So this week we read about A, 
Jethro coming and meeting Moses because as we know that Moses' family was not there by the exodus of Egypt because he sent them back on their way when he was going with them to Egypt. B, we also learn about the giving of the Torah, how God selects the Jewish people to be the chosen nation that he takes out of Egypt. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the idea of being the chosen nation. In Israel, in a place called Nachlas Har Chabad, which is in an area called Kiryat Malachi, I actually have an uncle and aunt that lived there. It's a Nachlas Har Chabad was a place that the Rebbe began to build um, after many Russian Jews in the 1970s, when many Russian Jews were coming from uh, Soviet Union and needed a place to settle in Israel. They built a big settlement in Kiryat Malachi, and it was called Nachlas Har Chabad. In that settlement, there's a family, a very well-known scribe, by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Landau. Now, this very well-known scribe, who is today a religious Jew from a well-known Chabad family, however, was not uh, always from a very religious family and was not always a well-known scribe. He was actually well-known for something else. He actually is an original from a place called, the city called Baya Blanca, Argentina. It's a small, little, far, uh, verschleppte city out there in the nowhere, really in the boondocks, if you really, there's nothing there. Baya Blanca, Argentina. He was a family, grew up in a family which knew nothing, zero about Judaism. He worked as a journalist who had a radio, a political, uh, political uh, sort of satire uh, talk show. And he lived what we would call a very secular, non-observant, zero relationship with anything Jewish. After he got married, this family gave birth to a child. The child's name was Nachum. When this boy, Nachum, was born, he couldn't open his right eye. The doctors told him he's too young to be able to open his right eye. And because of that, uh, they said, let's wait till we do any surgeries. And they waited until he was about three years old until they could do a surgery on his right eye. Once they did a surgery on his right eye, the doctors saw that they were able to restore 20% or 25% of his vision. And after they were able to restore 25% of the vision, the problem was that because three years he was using only his left eye, his left eye muscles became weaker and the vision in his left eye was deteriorating as well. And right now they were concerned that his vision was deteriorating to the extent that they didn't know if he would be able to see. And it was going, uh, what we'd call probably going blind. As you can imagine, the parents are beside themselves thinking what to do, how to do it, what are they going to go, went to this doctor, to that doctor. The doctors were very concerned that he probably will go blind. The father, Yehuda, one night, wakes up in a panic. He has a dream. And this is the way he says the story. The Rebbe came to him in a dream, and the Rebbe is sitting by the table, asking him, Yehuda, why are you so sad? So he turns to him, why am I so sad? My son, my firstborn son, might be blind. He won't be able to see. The Rebbe turns to him and asks him in the dream, does he wear tzitzis? Tzitzis. And he answers, he doesn't, what's tzitzis? I don't know what tzitzis is. He probably doesn't wear it. The Rebbe tells him, if you look in the Torah, it says in the book of Numbers, that they will put on the tzitzis, they will see the tzitzis, and they will see God and remember the 613 commandments. That means you have to be able to see the tzitzis. Make sure that he puts on tzitzis, and he'll be able to see them. And God will do what he has to do, that he should be able to see the tzitzis. This Yehuda never met the Rebbe, didn't know who the Rebbe was. He saw pictures, this, that, and the other. He woke up completely, didn't know what to do. Didn't know what, to, was he hallucinating? Where did it come from? What happened? What does he do? He already at that time, I think, moved to Israel. And he knew this Chabadnik came all over to getting people to put on tefillin. So he went to his local Chabad house. And he asked him, says, what's going on? So they told him, why don't you get a pair of tzitzis and give the boy to wear tzitzis? So they gave him a pair of tzitzis. But the problem is, if the kid wants to put on tzitzis, but his father's not wearing tzitzis. So in order to convince the kid to put on tzitzis, he started putting on tzitzis. And the father put on a yarmulke and tzitzis, and the kid started wearing tzitzis. Three months later, they had an appointment set that they were going to go to a big specialist. 
They already had this appointment set up that they had for three months that they were going to go to this massive specialist to see what they can do about the eyes of their child. They come to the specialist three months later. The specialist takes a look at the kid's eye and he says, one second, let me see the, ex- let me see the previous x-rays. He says, one doesn't make sense. He goes and I have to do another checkup. Let me look at it a little deeper. Let me look a little what's going on. Let me do my own x-rays. He says, I don't understand what you're coming here for. The kid has perfect vision. Everything was healed. He says, I've never seen this. He's looking at this x-ray. He's looking at this x-ray. Completely healed. Not only did Nachum start seeing, but if we want to call it, the entire family started seeing. The whole world in a different picture. And today, as we mentioned, the entire family, he's a scribe that lives in Israel, Yehuda, with his entire family being observant. Why am I saying this story? Because this story asks, asks a very difficult question. And the question is, how does this work? What's the connection? I put on tzitzis, so now the kid feels better. Why not mezuzah? Why not tefillin? Why not kosher? What is it that all of a sudden, I do a certain mitzvah and something changes? And this question begs on an entire greater subject that I'm asking a lot of times, and that's what we're going to discuss today. In Hebrew, there's a word called skulot. Skulot is very hard to translate, but many people translate it in the word called omens. Like if you do something, it's a good omen that something should happen. You check your tefillin, and therefore your heart will feel better. You check your mezuzahs, and therefore your car, whatever, you make sure that you're safe. What is it within the mitzvahs that why certain mitzvahs, or do we find the concept of being a certain type of omen for certain things to happen. Now, where does the word skula come from? It's actually in this week's Torah reading. In this week's Torah reading, before God gives the Jewish people the Torah, God tells the Jewish people, I want to give you the Torah. Moses comes and tells the Jewish people, You will be for me a cherished nation. I'm segula, a cherished nation. And this is expressing the Jewish people on the second day of Sivan, which is four days before the Torah was given. We call this day, until today it's called Yoim HaMeyuchas, the day that we were given our lineage, the day that we were chosen, the day that God made us for who we are today. And that is when God called us a kingdom of princes, that you are the chosen nation. That's what made us the chosen nation on the second day of Sivan. So how does it work? We are a chosen nation, and therefore there are certain omens that work, that don't work. What's actually going on over here? And this is not something which is theoretical. It's not some voodoo practice. We see this as something which is found in the Torah, in our sages. And even in recently, as we can see over here, the story where the Rebbe told this person to put on tzitzis, this was in a dream. But even in real life, there are letters, if you open up 29 volumes, that the Rebbe, I'm sorry, it's already almost 36 volumes of the Rebbe's responses of letters to people. There are many different letters where people ask questions for health matters, and the Rebbe points them to different laws and different verses in the Torah, where we see that a person who does certain things, it enhances that physical ailment that the person has. Give you an example. One of them is about a woman who once asked a question who she had problems with her eyesight. The Rebbe then sent her uh, a response, and this was actually found in Jewish law as well, and the Rebbe sent her a response quoting Jewish law, and he says, probably she listens to Kiddush and Avdallah, and she tastes from the wine of Kiddush, as is the custom of Jewish people, and after Avdallah she dips her fingers and puts her by her eyes, therefore she should be careful in this, and this is a good omen for seeing better. I actually know somebody, personally, who had different styes they were getting on their eye, and after being careful and making Avdallah on wine, and being careful in this practice, they no longer have it. There's a, this is a, something which we see, Code of Jewish Law says, when a person looks at the wine and the candles during Kiddush, this helps their eyesight. So we see, again, a practice seemingly in Omen. Another person who asked a question about, asked a blessing for their feet, that they were having issues with their feet, the Rebbe gave them a, a suggestion that they should continue and to increase in the giving of tzedakah, as it says that money is what a, per- a person on his feet, and in order to have money, if they get the life from their feet, so therefore, he quotes a tractate in the tractate Pesachim where it tells us that money is what sets a person on their feet and therefore he should and money is considered 
the feet of the Jewish people, and therefore he tells them to increase in charity for a good omen that their feet should be healed. So again, we see different real practices, quotes from the Talmud, from Jewish law. Again, this is not a voodoo practice. This is clearly quoted in Jewish law, how we see certain mitzvahs have a relationship with certain parts of our body. And our question is, why? And what is the relationship between the mitzvah to the physical ailment that the person may be suffering from? And why specifically that mitzvah towards and not any other mitzvah? With that, we come to another general question. And hopefully by understanding the next general question, we'll be able to get back to this original question and have a better understanding of it. Which is a very common asked question by most Jews, religious or secular alike. Why are there so many commandments? What's the purpose? Why does God have to give us so many commandments? What's the purpose why God has to give us so many demands and so many complications that every single part of our life we have a commandment for, as we're going to get to in a moment. And in fact, this is not only the question that common observers today ask. This is a question that was asked by one of the very famous Talmudic Tanaik, that means an author of the Mishnah, asked this question. And his name was Rabbi Hananya ben Akasha. And anybody that's familiar with uh, learning or in synagogue, you will notice, or even ethics of her fathers, especially in Sephardic synagogues, it's very common that after they finished any class, somebody gets up and says, Rabbi Hanani Bakashi Omer says the phrase of the Mishnah, followed by a Rabbanan Kaddish. And after every Rabbanan Kaddish, you will find that this is said after this Mishnah. Now, those that came to our uh, JLI class know that in the Talmud, there are different types of Talmudic law, and we're going to talk about it actually tomorrow night, even in depth. There's Agadic and there's Halachic. Agadic, which means explanations of verses, ethical, moral dilemmas. And halachic is more exactly concise laws of how we have to observe. This Mishnah of Rabbi Hananya ben Akashia is an agadic text which talks about a question. Why does God give us so many commandments? And he gives an answer. Why is it that the Kaddish that we say, the Rabbanan Kaddish, is only after this agadic text? The Talmud says as follows. And the Talmud says an interesting thing. Ever since, the, ever since the Holy Temple was destroyed, and because the Holy Temple was destroyed, there is more non-good in the world than good. That means there's more none of blessings than blessings in the world. We need to have a counterbalance. What's the counterbalance? Is the Kedusha and its translation and the Agadic discussions of the Torah. What is that? What is the Kedusha? And if anybody's familiar with any of the prayers, there's a prayer called Uvalitziyah. And in Uvalitzin, we say it after Ashray in the morning service, and we say it in Mincha and Shabbos. And in Uvalitzin, it says, Kaddish, 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 the Hebrew. And then it says Aramaic, the Aramaic, which was the language at the time. As well, as it says, it continues, and the Targum. And the Talmud says that after saying the words of the Torah and then translating it, that's when a Kaddish should be said. The same thing is as well, we pick an Agadic words, Rabbi Hananya ben Akasha, not a halacha, not the very big esoteric teaching, just this exact Agadic teaching, and then we say a Kaddish Rabbanan afterwards. We see this also after we sing Enkel Okenu, and again we talk about the spices and the incense that were brought in the Holy Temple, and the Rabbanan Kaddish is said. And, what's, and then many people who say, whenever a Mishnah said or anything is studied in the synagogue, after any study, when somebody finishes a tractate, we always say, that's when we say the Rabban and Kaddish. But why is Rabbi Hananya ben Akasha selected to be the one, this statement, selected to be always a Kaddish after it? So there's an interesting theory that some Sephardic books bring down, which is that the reason is that Rabbi Hananya ben Akasha didn't have any children. And therefore, he wants somebody to say Kaddish for him, so to speak. And therefore, we always say the Kaddish after his statement. The problem is that, is that necessarily so? And then are we going to mention every single Talmudic sage who didn't have children? So that's a little of a, uh, looks like a little of a kapat answer, and not necessarily an accurate one. However, Rashi, which is the commentary on the Mishnah, or on the Talmud at that point, because actually the interesting thing is that this Mishnah, Rabbi Hanani ben Akashi, is brought twice in the Talmud. Once at the end of the tractate of Makos, and then it's brought again in a different place. And it says, because it's a nice ending, so therefore we use it a lot of times. That means this Agadic ending is so nice, and therefore we use it a lot. 
What is the ending? What's so nice about it that Rashi says it's so beautiful that we use it all the time? And here's the question. And here's what he asks. And here's what the Mishnah is about. The Mishnah that he asks, Rabbi Chanan ben Akashi says, why are there so many commandments in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Torah? Judaism is the only religion in the world that there's every single facet of your life, every single thing you do, there's a commandment for. Take any other religion. Any other religion you take about, you think about. In fact, one of the things that Christianity was opposed to in Judaism, because if the first Christians were Jews, Paul claimed was a student of Ramah Gamliel. So the friend, what was their argument? What are we going to get deal with the nitty-gritty? God is all about the service of the heart. Connect your heart to God and forget about the behaviors. And therefore, Christianity is all about the heart, so to speak, the soul relationship, the emotional connection you have with God. Not about action. Islam, if you take for on the other hand, has certain laws, statutes, there's no questions, there's no answers, this is the way you do it, tough luck. Whatever it is, how you dress, and what, so, but certain things, and they have a, a few things in life, and that's their laws. Judaism, on the other hand, has everything different. What you eat, what you dress, what you wear, how you do business, how you, what you practice, how you do the holidays. There isn't a thing in your life that doesn't have a Jewish law that has connected with it. Whether it's your business activity, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your prayers, whether it's your spiritual, you pick something you do, it has a law concerning it. And Rabbi Hanan ibn Akash's question is, why? Let me go to the business and do how I want to do business. What does God have to get involved over there? Let me see if I'm in shul. Fine, I can understand. But why are you coming into my business? Why are you coming into my personal life? Why are you coming into what I eat? Why does every single part of my life have to have a mitzvah? Have to have a law? And if you look at it, every single detail to the extent, as we know, the Jewish people, where were they coming from before the Torah was given? There were seven Ochaid laws. After the seven Ochaid laws, fine, they were given another four laws. Last week's Torah reading, the laws of Shabbos, the law of Gid Anosh, not to have to from sciatic nerve because Yaakov was sit there, and the law of, of Miser, of giving tithe, fine. But then all of a sudden comes my man, and it comes uh, the Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, God gives them 613 commandments. And those 613 commandments, of course, have extrapolated and used into all the different levels. Every single one, every single facet of your life, as you mentioned, has a mitzvah. Within the Ten Commandments, just here's an interesting tidbit. Within the interest of the Ten Commandments, that means if you take the words of the Ten Commandments, have 620 words, which correspond to the 613 commandments and the seven rabbinic laws. So we see right over here clearly, within, I'm sorry, 620 letters. 620 letters, and 620 letters corresponding to the 613 commandments and to the seven, seven rabbinic laws. No, Noachide are part of where we have to do the 613 commandments. It's part of them. Seven rabbinic laws, like Hallel, washing your hands, making a blessing before we eat, Hanukkah, Purim, those are rabbinic laws. So the seven rabbinic laws and 613 uh, commandments, those are already alluded to into the Ten Commandments, into the letters and words of the Ten Commandments. But the question is, why? Why every single part of our life, every single facet, and every single nuance that we do is guided and guarded by the, by the laws of the Torah. In fact, the greatest demagogue of all times, the greatest person who tried to make the first coup, known by a fellow by the name of Korach in the book of Numbers, this was his argument to Moshe. But he was a very good, talented publicist and PR fellow. And how did he take this case? He couldn't come to Moshe and say, hey, why are there so many laws? So he made the following scenario. He took a group of people, gathered them and felt to Moshe, and says, Moshe, I don't understand. Imagine, this widow came to me, and my neighbor, and this widow, she had two daughters, orphans, who she owned the field. Moshe comes to her and says, no plowing your field with an ox and donkey. No, only an ox on its own. Okay, finally, she plows her field only with an ox. She finally starts to plow the field, now she wants to seed it. He says, no, 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 no mixing seedlings. One seedling at a time. You can't combine seedlings. You can't combine fruit. It's a problem of kilai. You're mixing them together. Okay, she finally sows her field. The fruits start to grow and everything. All of a sudden, Moshe comes along. No, leave that for the corner of the field for the poor. Then what you drop from your shoulder has to go for the poor. The last bundle that you left here has to go for the poor. Fine, she leaves for the poor. 
Finally, she's gathering her fruit together. He says, no, this you have to give to the Kohen, that you have to give to the Levi. Okay, fine. The next year, that you have to give to the poor person. What does she do? She says, okay, I can't plant. I have to give this to the poor. So much, so many laws there. So she takes her sheep and she starts shearing her sheep. He says, no, 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 no. The first shearings of your wool have to go to the Kohen. So she says, okay, you know what? I'll slaughter it and I'll eat it. He says, no, 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 no. There's five portions of the animal you have to give to the Kohen. He says, look at this. You take this poor widow, every little thing she tries to do, there's a law taking away everything. from. Look how you're taxing the people here. So you see what kind of demagogue he was? So what was the answer to Korah? What did God do? Opened up the ground, into the ground he go. That was his answer. You got a complaint? Take it where it belongs. <laughs> but what is Rabbi Hananik bin Akash's answer? Rabbi Hananik bin Akash asked a very good question. Why so many laws? Why does the Torah putting so many laws on the people? Can't you just let them live? What does Rabbi Hananik bin Akash answer? He says as follows. God wanted to make the Jewish people He wanted to give them amount, He wanted to give them great reward. And with every single mitzvah we do, we get an extra reward. The question is, God could have made one mitzvah and give you a lot of reward for it too. Why do I have to have a lot of mitzvahs to get a lot of reward? Why does that work out? What does it mean? He gave us a lot of mitzvahs so you can get a lot of reward. Give us five mitzvahs and if you do them properly, you get a lot of reward. So Rabbi Lau, the chief rabbi of Israel, gives an interesting uh, interpretation. And he says, you know, you have all different kinds of people. Take in the world, you have people who are intellectuals and people who are like pragmatic. And then you have people within the pragmatic, you are people who are spiritually pragmatic and people who are like materialistically pragmatic. He says that God wanted to have a mitzvah for everybody. You have a mitzvah for the intellectuals, they can study Torah. You have a mitzvah for the people that are pragmatic, they can do mitzvahs. You want to be a helpful fellow, you can give that guy charity. You want to be a spiritual fellow, you can put on tefillin. So there's a mitzvah for everybody, everybody can have what they can do. And therefore, what does he say? What does Rabbi Hanani ben Akash do? He made all different kinds of mitzvahs, so everybody can find their place, their connection, their relationship. One say chassid, of the Kotzke Rebbe. The Kotzke Rebbe was a very witty guy. He was a student of the Magad of Mizri, the great dynasties came from, his name was Rabbi Nechamendel of Kotzke. And he once a chassid came into the Kotzke Rebbe, and he had a complaint, he had a problem. For many years he sat and studied Torah, learned in the synagogue, and his father-in-law supported him. What happened was his father-in-law wants to retire, and wants him to take over the business. And now he has to left. He wants them to leave the study all and go take over the business. He says, what am I to do? How can I leave the want? How can I leave studying Torah and take over the business? The Kutzker talks, tells him and says, that's exactly where Rabbi ben Akashi was telling us in this week's Mishnah, in the Mishnah. He says, God wanted to give the Jewish people merit. Therefore, he gave them many mitzvahs. Meaning, every person can find his share in the Torah. Until now, your part of the Torah was your relationship with God was to sit and study Torah. But you were not able to do many of the mitzvahs. You didn't have the mitzvah of tithing. You didn't have the mitzvah of doing business honestly. Not to do interest. All those mitzvahs you were missing out on. Now God gives you an opportunity to do all those mitzvahs. Well, it's not a contradiction. Maimonides takes it a step further. And Maimonides puts it as part of the fundamentals of faith. And in his, and in his explanation to the Mishnah, Maimonides tells us that every single person has to look at every single one of the 613 commandments, that if, if he didn't do them, he is missing out on part of his life. Meaning, that God is giving us the ability, and every single mitzvah, it's not about the quantity of the mitzvah, it's the quality of the mitzvah. You have to believe that this is your channel, your avenue, to make it to heaven, so to speak. And therefore, God gives us so many different mitzvahs, because we never know what is our channel, what is our direction, what's our connection, what's our relationship dependent on. And when you have that mitzvah, you have the ability to get you to the world to come. This may be your connection. And Maimonides brings us from a story, a fascinating story of the Talmud. We read this actually on Yom Kippur, on Antisha B'Av. It's actually a sad episode of the Torah. A sad episode in Jewish history when 10 great sages were killed by the Romans over a period of 200 years. There were 10 great sages that were killed by the Romans for teaching Judaism and for being great Torah scholars. That was their only sin. Rabbi Akiva was one of them. 
And another one amongst them was his name by the fellow of Rabbi Hanina ben Tradian. He was actually the father-in-law of Rabbi Meir. If you remember, the great character, Bruria, one of the famous women in the Mishnah, this was her father, Rabbi Hanina ben Tradian. Rabbi Hanina ben Tradian was about to be killed by the Romans and he asked his student, Rabbi Yossi ben Kisma, he asked him, do you think I'll make it to heaven? Do you think I'll make it into the Garden of Eden? So Rabbi Yossi says, listen, tell me what you did good in your life. Tell me. Tell me what you did good. So Rabbi ben Tradian tells him that once, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm in charge of collecting the charity for the needy. And on Purim is a time when a lot of people give charity. And I had my money in one pocket, the charity money in another pocket. And by mistake, because there was so much money, the money got mixed. And I wasn't sure what was mine and what was the charity, and I gave it all to charity. So Rabbi Yossi says, if so, direct flight to heaven. You have nothing to worry about. Now let me ask you, Dura Maimonides says, this Rabbi ben Tradin was being killed by the Romans, not because... He was a knight, not because he was just a good-looking fellow. As the Talmud tells us, Rabbi Hanina ben Tradin was a person who defied the Roman decree and gathered Jewish people together every single day and taught them Torah with self-sacrifice. He was a person and a teacher, a great teacher of Torah. And all of a sudden, he's, he's being killed because he was teaching Torah. He was being killed and tortured because he, taught, he went on self-sacrifice to teach every single person Torah. And he's worried that he asked Rabbi Yassim ben Kisma, am I going to merit into heaven? And what does Rabbi Yassim ben Kisma say? He doesn't tell him, oh, don't worry, you're teaching Torah, so therefore you'll make it into heaven. What does he say? Because you gave charity and you gave up from your money, therefore you're going to make it into heaven. And second, didn't, isn't his life worthy enough? Isn't he a great person on his own that he should be able to make it into Torah, that he should make it into heaven? And what's he telling us? He says no. Because Rabbi Chinnah ben Tradin, it was his job, so to speak, if you want to call it, to teach Torah. He not necessarily went out of his comfort zone. He did it because of who he was. Maybe he loved the intellectual, stimulating, challenging, and conversation. But when did he go out of his comfort zone? When did it show that he did and he was committed? Was when he gave the charity, even though it got mixed up with his own charity. That showed on a commitment. In fact, the Alter Rebbe in his, in his uh, an anthology, Lukute Torah, tells us as follows. He says he takes it even a step further. You know, many times people do things in life because that's who they are. And they do very good things. And the Alter Rebbe brings it in Tanya as well. You can have a person who's studious and loves to study Torah. But you know why they love to study Torah? Because they're, in, they're, they're in, what do you call it? A person who's not an introvert. They don't like dealing with people. They don't want to talk to anybody. So therefore, what's the best thing for them to sit in the study hall and study Torah? Nobody has to bother them. They're not bothered by anybody. They don't bother anybody. Everything works out. So studying Torah to them is a natural way of how they work, how they operate. It's not because, yes, they like studying Torah. They want to be connected to God. They're stimulated by its intellect. But is it a challenge for their evil inclination? Are they changing their soul because of it? Yes, but no. Because they haven't gone out of the comfort zone. And this is what you can say about Rabbi Hanir ben Shadim. He studied Torah. He worked on his study of Torah. It was a wonderful thing. But what is Rabbi Hananiah ben Akashi telling us? Lezakoi says Yisrael. God gave us the Torah, the mitzvahs to purify us, to cleanse us, to give us more merit. To go out of your comfort zone. Not only am I giving you commandments, which are within a line of who you are, I'm also going to give you something which is maybe you need to go beyond yourself. For Rabchanina ben Tradian, what would it mean to go beyond himself? That he gave that charity, which wasn't comfortable, to be the extrovert, to go around to collecting the charity, to give it to the poor. Because that wasn't who he was. And therefore he went out of his comfort zone, did it and helped somebody, and therefore Rabbi Yossi Bekishma says, that's your ticket to heaven. Why? Because you went out of your comfort zone even more so. Because you did something which seemingly there's no rationale to it. It's not your nature. You can't explain why you did it. I could have honestly went, said, I think I had $25 of my own money, taken the rest and given it to charity. Nobody would have blinked an eye. It wasn't around, it was a rich man. He could have used the charity himself. But he decided, I'm going to go beyond myself and do it. He says that was his ticket. Meaning, 
that what is God looking for? It's not about the quantity of how many mitzvahs, it's the quality of what he did. And because of that, Rabbi Hananiah ben Akashi tells us, he gives us so many mitzvahs because he wants to give us opportunities to say, this may be your avenue or that may be your avenue. Every person has their way to do it. But then there's another way, another thing of looking at it. Why still are we obligated if I find my avenue? Maybe let me find my avenue. If my avenue is charity, let me just do charity. Okay, I'm good. Why do I have to do the other 612 commandments? If the whole thing is just to go out of my comfort zone, if the whole thing is only that I should find something that's going to be, so to speak, my ticket to heaven, let me find what my ticket is. Let me find something, even if it's not comfortable, I'll do it and I'll be all right. Why do I have to do all the 613 commandments? Let me just do one of them, whatever which one it is. And over here, the Rebbe gives us a better understanding in what the word Lazakos as Yisrael means. Lazakos as Yisrael means to purify. The word Lazakos can either be to give merit from the word Zechus, or also come from the word Zach, like Shemen Zayi Zach, pure olive oil. God gave us so many commandments because He wants to help us to be refined, to become pure. What does this mean? Think about it. I don't know if you were following when Queen Elizabeth II died. All of a sudden, the media came out with all the different uh, behaviors that were demanded. People were talking about when they came to the royal palace and how they had to behave and the laws of etiquette that where you had to do in the, in the, you know, by the queen. For example, one of them was that if you're sitting by the table, you're only first allowed to talk to the person on your right. After you finish talking to the person on your right, you're allowed to turn to the person on your left. The flowers have to be in the two centimeters from the side, a mill three millimeters from the other side. All the different crazinesses that had to happen. Where you have to sit, who's allowed to talk first, how you have to prepare the tea. First you have to put in the hot water, then you can put in the tea, and only then you can put in the sweetener once the tea changes colors. All these seemingly stupidities. And everybody asks this question. What is it? Why is it? Does really the queen really care if the guy spoke to the person on the right first instead of to the person on the left? And there was once a story that this big writer was invited to the queen's palace and for brunch, and he mistakenly turned to the person on his left instead of because he didn't know the etiquette of the palace, and he was almost kicked out because since he broke protocol. Or one of the reasons why they're upset with certain people that join the palace family, the royal family, is because they break protocol, they're not keeping protocol, and all the different things. Why is there so many protocols to the nitty-gritty? We're talking about it one millimeter to the right, one millimeter to the left. You know, it almost sounds like Jewish law. But why is there such so many particulars? And the reason is something very unique. Take any picture. Beautiful portrait. Beautiful home. What is it? One blob, or is it many, many thousands of millions of details? Every single beautiful thing you see is made up of a mosaic of a bunch of small little details. The more detail to it, the more beautiful it is. Why? Because it's the details that make it beautiful. I can have a straight wall, it'll look nice. But when is it really beautiful? When I add that extra touch, that one more line, everything to the and it's exactly here and it's centered and it's exactly where it is life is in the details the same thing is about life look at your life is your life one big chunk the time you were in primary school to the time when you were in preschool to the time when you were in elementary school to the college to the marriage to the siblings to the children to the grandchildren every single detail is what makes it a beautiful landscape a portrait of your life True beauty is made up of so many details. The same idea is also Lahavda when we want to look at the Torah and exactly what God is giving the Jewish people. Every single Jew is considered an entire universe. But even more so, every single Jew is a king and queen, is a prince by God. And in order for us to have a beautiful life, in order for us to have a beautiful relationship, there are laws of etiquette. And just like in the queen's palace, and just like in the royal family, there are laws of etiquette of how we sit, and how we behave, and how we talk, and what we do. So too in the royal family of God, there are ways of how we behave. And if you want to fit into the royal family, this is how you behave. There's a royal protocol. The Torah and mitzvahs are a protocol. 
of how we behave as kings and kings and queens, of how we become princes and princes. And for that reason, you will see that everything in the world is split up into three categories. Oilam, which means universe. Shana, year, time. Nefesh, soul. Everything is split up into place, person, and time. And therefore, every single mitzvah that we are given fit into any one of these three categories. They fit into the oilam, they fit into either there's a law about the space, whether I have to have a mezuzah, a menorah, a sukkah, that's about the space. It's about the mokim, it's about the shana, the time. I celebrate Pesach a specific time, I say Shema a specific time, I say Parantful in a specific time. Or it's about the nefesh, or it's about the individual believing in God, having faith. It's about the individual soul. And that is because for a Jew, for a prince, for a king and a queen, there is no such thing as an ordinary day. There is no such thing as an ordinary act. Everything we do is a royal edict. Everything we do is part of our royal protocol. Everything we do is in order to be able to personify that we are kings and queens, princes and princes, and what we see is holiness. Is to be able to listen with ears that are holy, with eyes that are holy, to speak words that are appropriate for a king and queen. And because of this, every single mitzvah is there for another part of the body. To elevate, to rectify, and to refine another part of the body. We put on tefillin so that we should have a good arm. We believe in God so we should have a good heart. We learn Torah so we should have good intellect. We make Kiddush so we have good hands. Every single part of a, every single mitzvah is given another one of our senses, another one of our bodies, another one of our abilities that we can refine, because that we can refine it, as we said, why did God give us so many mitzvahs? To make our body holy. And that's what you're going to find in every single part of our Judaism, whether it's taking a haircut, not to cut off the sideburns, whether it's to going to the bathroom, to be able to dress appropriately, make the blessing afterwards. We're tying our shoes like this. Every single part of our body is, inf- is infused with this idea that is coming from God. To be given to vital energy. Because not only is there an energy, a physical energy making that item alive, but there's a spiritual energy that's needed to be able to make it continue to live. If I don't have the spiritual energy, that physical part of my body can also not work. And therefore, as Rabbi Simulayi says, God gave us 365 negative commandments. Why 360 negative commandments? Because there are 365 days in the year for the solar year. 248 positive commandments for the 248 limbs that a person has. The Zohar explains as well that there are 248 positive commandments for the 248 limbs and the 365 negative commandments for the 365 sinews. Every single part of our body is covered with one of those mitzvahs. That means when we do a mitzvah, we're not just doing a mitzvah because we want to connect to God. As Rabbi Hanan Yabin tells us, we're doing the mitzvah because every single time I do a mitzvah, I'm refining that limb, that energy, that sinew, that whatever it may be, to connect, to make it holy, to make it godly. All this is brought, and this is why Rashi says, this is the beautiful ending of Rabbi Hananiah ben Akashia. Why we use this always to say a Kaddish. This is always when you say a Rabban and Kaddish, we say this mitzvah. Because what Rabbi Hananiah ben Akashia is teaching us is the beauty that exists within the human being in his physical materialistic body. How they're all conduits and vessels waiting to be refined and to be uplifted and to be changed by the mitzvah that's done with it. How does a person see then the relationship? How does a person see what mitzvah will help what part of my body? And if I take, as we mentioned before, that there's 248 limbs, and they're from the 248 positive commandments, so too I'm able to see that each one of them are a channel to bring healing physically to that part of the body. So what are we saying over here? It's simple. If we're going to talk about the protocol, the royal protocol that exists within the kingdom of flesh and blood, how much more so in the royal protocol with our relationship with God, that when a Jew needs a blessing in any part of his body, physical part of his body, what does he have to make sure is that the spiritual component of it that's giving it the energy should be alive as well. 
So if I need a hell healing in my legs, I have to make sure I'm giving tzedakah because that's the part of my legs. If I need healing in my hand, I have to make sure that I'm putting on tefillin. If I need healing in my head, I have to study Torah. Every single part of my body corresponds to another part of my physical. And therefore when he says, when the Rebbe tells the person about putting his wine or drilled by the wine for Kiddush and Avdallah for their eyes, is because why do you have eyes to see Kiddush and Avdallah? And if I'm not utilizing it, then God says, what do I need it for? I'm not giving it energy. I'm not using it. I'm not following protocol. And therefore we find in many of these in many cases, in many times when people ask the Rebbe for blessings and healings in different cases, the Rebbe told them, check your mezuzahs, check your tefillin, mm-hmm. make sure they keep kosher. Why? Because these are a direct correlation. It's a cause and effect. It's not an omen. As we mentioned, voodoo practice, you put on tzitzis and all of a sudden you start seeing. No, you need to be able to see to put on tzitzis. And if you don't have tzitzis, there's no reason for you to see. So therefore you have to put on tzitzis. It's a direct correlation. It's a cause and effect. It's not an omen, it's not a meritorious, it's something which you need to give vitality to that limb, to that sinew, to that uh, sense, and the only way it gets vitality is if it's used to be done a mitzvah. And if it's used to do a mitzvah, then automatically, then it works. This, this is not only when we talk about for individuals and utilizing each limb to do a mitzvah, but there it goes even a step further. The Talmud says that the sages would ask, your father, Avuch, b'may Your father, what was his mitzvah? That means besides doing all the mitzvahs, but there was then another component. The word Zohir doesn't only mean careful, but also mean, comes from the word Zohar, to shine. And the Talmud says that every single Jew and every single person has their avenue, their gateway, where all the rest of the mitzvahs flourish through. And therefore, the great... Uh, the great uh, Talmudic sages knew what was there, so to speak, their avenue. And with that, they did all the mitzvahs. So for example, there was one that Shabbos was his mitzvah. And because Shabbos was his mitzvah, he had to work honestly, he had to study, he had to learn. And all the other mitzvahs were components of what that general mitzvah was. But he shined Shabbos. He was a Shabbos yid. Another person, he was a mezuzah yid. That was his mitzvah. That was his shine. That was his thing that he was careful in. Kabbalah and Hasidism explains that every single Jew and every single soul comes from the original soul of Adam. But every single soul is drawn to different things, is pulled to different ideas, has like we, you know, a certain type of drawing to something else. And that's because it's coming from the head soul coming from Adam. But then there's also certain ones that we have an emotionally connection to. And what is this because? That every single Jew has certain inkling or favoritism towards a certain mitzvah. And that's because if you feel that your soul is drawing you towards a certain mitzvah, that is because that mitzvah is your, so to speak, your avenue, your gateway, your doorway to get all the other mitzvahs into it. So capitalize on that mitzvah. Make that mitzvah shine. But because of that, you're going to do all the other mitzvahs. So if you enjoy Shabbos, then you have to study about Shabbos, then you have to learn Torah because of Shabbos, you have to be able to uh, work honestly because of Shabbos, and all the other mitzvahs can be feeding into that. But that's your gateway. You like tzedakah, that means you have to work, you have to study. Same idea. But you can have a gateway, you can have some type of avenue, some type of uh, drive, if you want to call it, and that mitzvah is yours, and that's the way, so to speak, it leads you to where you need to go. But the ultimate purpose is that we have to purify and to be able to rectify every single part of our body and every single limb and every single part to be able to purify every single part of our body to make it holy and to make it something which is uh, purified that it should be able to be a conduit to be able to finally complete the job and refine every single particle and spark in this world to make it something holy to bring about Moshiach. There's an interesting story talking of this concept of how we have an obligation and sometimes the obligation that we see goes beyond ourselves. And the obligation to be able to purify ourselves not only when we seemingly in the synagogue but even wherever we are. There's a fascinating story told that during uh, Operation Lead, I think it was right after those three boys were captured in Israel and the, Jew- and the Israelis did a um, operation, if you want to call it, in the Gaza Strip. So the first thing the United Nation does is condemn the Israelis, right? for their terrible acts of defending themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was one, this, during that time, there was a vote that came 
up in the United Nations and it failed. They needed nine votes and one of the reasons why it failed was South Korea voted against. A few days after South Korea voting against, the ambassador of South Korea calls up a fellow by the name of Mr. Werdiger, Saul Werdiger, who owns a company called Outerwear, Outer Stuff Outerwear. He is also the uh, president of Agudis Yisrael, which is the uh, national, so to speak, Jewish umbrella uh, political arm from, you know, from many uh, Jewish uh, organizations, Orthodox organizations. And he calls him up and he says, you're wondering probably why South Korea voted against this uh, thing, this thing to condemn the Israeli people. Which usually uh, South Korea abstains or does not there for the vote, but they're not always, let's say, the greatest ally. But that time, they voted against. And he says, I'll tell you why. He says, it happens to be that my daughter is studying uh, fashion design. And she has to do an internship. And she's doing an internship in outerwear in your company. And she walked into the company and she heard that the company, you know, is owned by religious Jews. And of course, whatever her stereotype about religious Jews were coming from South Korea. She says, however, two months ago, my daughter came home from working, you know, she finished her internship. And she's telling us these fascinating stories. First of all, how everybody in the company gets off on Shabbos. No matter if they're Jewish, they're not, they're secular observant, everybody gets off on Shabbos. Number two, she says, in the middle of the day, the company comes to a stop and they have like a prayer service, which is mincha, they have, they have in the side. Number three, she says, there's always a troves of people coming and collecting money for charity. And everybody's welcome and everybody walks out. She says, I got a whole new perspective on the Jewish people. This is not the people that I heard about, that they're robbing people and killing Arabs, you know, genocide and all the different things they talk about the Jewish people doing against the Arabs. This is the, not, this is the totally different story. And therefore, I said, I'm going to have to vote against. This is over here, an individual didn't even know that she was from the ambassador's daughter. Doing what he did, following the Torah laws, doesn't only refine ourselves, doesn't only make us better people, but makes the world us around better people. And what the Torah is telling us in this week's Torah reading, you're going to be for me a precious nation. The word segula, which means precious nation, as well as segula as omens. By fulfilling the 613 commandments, we don't only energize our own body, but we energize the entire universe and refine it to bring it to finally to a world of perfection that we can have the coming of Moshiach.